today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by starting to look at some of the more controversial aspects of church history. Over the next six episodes, we'll have Dr. John Rao join us to look at the hot-button issues that are commonly used to attack the Catholic faith. Today, we'll start by looking at the Crusades. Were they good or were they bad? Or is it a lot more complicated than that? How did the Crusades impact the growth of Roman Catholicism, and how did they impact the relationship between East and West? We'll start to look at all those questions and many more right now. You can find notes to all these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Dr. John Rao for episode number 21 of the Apologetic Series, right now on the SSPX Podcast. Welcome back to the SSPX Apologetic Series, and welcomed by, with, with Dr. Rao. Dr. John Rao, how are you? I'm doing well. Very good. Good. Well, you are a familiar face, I think, to a lot of people who have been to Angelus press conferences and read articles in the Angelus magazine. But for those who may not know uh, who you are, could you introduce yourself a little bit? And then I think it'll kind of become apparent why we asked you to come on for a few of these episodes. Okay. Well, um, I am now 72 years old and retired after 43 years at St. John's University, which I began in 1979 as Associate Professor of History. Um, I have my um, my doctoral training in Oxford University in Modern European History. But what's most important with regard to our audience here is that uh, since 1970, when I was an undergraduate at Drew University in the United States, also studying European history, I became uh, involved with the traditionalist movement. So really pretty much from the very beginning. And I became involved in it through the Roman Forum, which had been founded by Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand in 1968. And Father Vincent Michelli, von Hildebrand's wife, also Alice von Hildebrand, and Dr. William Mara of Fordham University. And they'd founded it to uh, initially to defend Humanae Vitae. But then when 1969 came along, uh, they also dedicated the Roman Forum to fighting against all of the problems of Vatican II, and most especially for the defense of the traditional mass. So my life since I've been 19 years old has been involved in the traditionalist movement. And uh, as far as the Society of St. Pius X is concerned, I started lecturing for the seminary, which was in Ridgefield in uh, 1987. And then I've been pretty much connected with um, doing uh, academic work for the, uh, for the society ever since. Fantastic. It's a, you've done a massive amount of work for the traditional movement. So thank you for <laughs> dedicating your life to it. And thank you. And, thank you. Perhaps you can telephone my wife and tell her that later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's always the wives that bear the brunt of, of the work. It usually, usually seems well, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Dr. Rao, we're going to be having you on for five or six episodes. Um, not so much talking about the theological aspects of apologetics, but more talking about the historical aspects of apologetics, which, you know, you're very well versed in, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the crusades. We're also going to get into the inquisition, you know, um, Spanish colonization, selling of indulgences, Galileo, all those kind of hot button issues that seem to be the, you know, when, when traditional Catholics or Catholics in general go to college, it always seems to be, those are the ones that, that people attack. Um, so but today we'll talk about the Crusades. Um, so 
Crusades get get a lot of attention. There's a lot of anti-Catholic thinkers who say the Crusades were awful, they were terrible. Um, so broadly, why why should we care about the Crusades? What is so good or bad about the Crusades? Let's start with a broader overview, and then we'll kind of start to dive into more of the historical aspects of it. Well, I mean, if you start off with the question of why is it that uh, it's used by anti-Catholics to hammer us over the head uh, with, it's because of the fact that like with many other questions, critics of the Catholic Church uh, will look at things that are the problems, the pro- the, the failures. Um, and then when they talk about the opposite position that they claim that they're defending, what they do is they talk about the th- theoretical wonders of their position and neglect all of the failures so that there's a kind of, um, of initial uh, prejudice against getting the full argument. And the full argument and what it is that is of concern uh, for us about the Crusades is the fact that it represents a much, much broader understanding of what our whole mission in life is all about. And that broader mission in life is something which uh, we believe and then we have used our reason in order to defend is something which is uh, the most important thing that human beings can do, namely to uh, use their life to try to work, to reach eternal life with God and bring as, as many of those as possible along along with us. And that since we are fail, uh, we, we are we are flawed human beings, sinful human beings, we don't necessarily get everything correct when we do what it is that we're supposed to do. And as a result, crusading is part of a broader understanding of the whole mission of the Christian in general. And that mission is a very good and necessary mission. But when we try to put that mission into practice, we do things wrong. And those who are critics of ours can focus on what it is that we do wrong in such a way as to make it sound like the entire mission is uh, flawed. I don't know if that's a good start to explain yeah. what So that makes sense. So that is, so you're saying the crusades or or the general concept of crusading, that is fighting for the faith, fighting in a very physical, real temporal sense is an integral part of being a Catholic here on earth is if I'm kind of distilling what you said. Yes. I mean, the, the, the reason for crusading in general, before you even get into the specifics of any kind of military action that involve that's involved with it, is 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 owed to the fact that Christ tells us that the kingdom of God is at hand, and what he means by that, of course, is that we must use our lives in order to build in this uh, in this uh, flawed universe of ours. Uh, the kingdom of God. And in doing so, we are working to achieve our eternal salvation. And what this is going to mean from the very outset is accepting a creation which was made by God to be good, but was flawed through sin. And while accepting the creation that we live in is the framework for what we have to uh, do in order to reach eternal life to, uh, with God, we have to correct uh, that creation We have to correct our sins while working to correct the creation around us that helps us to be able to do that work. And that by doing all of this, we have to transform everything in Christ. And this is inevitably going to involve every single aspect of life. It's going to involve us, our families, our workplaces, the societies we live in, the states that govern us, those states in action with other states all of which are going to involve the entire gamut of human experience, which unfortunately may at times involve warfare as well. And so crusading is going to involve everything from making sure that our children behave properly in a way that could uh, involve disciplining, 
uh, their lives to to potentially fighting wars as well. That makes sense. So it's, it's the whole gamut of, of the whole gamut of human existence. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be talking, I think, mostly about the what's called the Great Crusades. And this is this period between about 1095 to the end of the 1200s, early, you know, 1290-ish. Um, so that's the main cultural or the, the main aspect that we're talking about. But before we dive into that, are there any examples of this temporal fighting or, you know, spiritual plus physical warfare that happened before this period? Are there There's any? many examples of it beforehand. Uh, just to take minor fighting and not not actual fighting uh, involving involving uh, states one against another or armies once against another. The the Christians already when they uh, when Christianity was legalized in places like like um, uh, the western part of the empire, they realized that it was going to be a battle for them to to use a a, a term. Uh, that was common in the late 300s, take possession of public spaces. And you can see in a way how they did this literally in a place like Rome, when you consider, for example, that you've got churches like Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, because you have the Temple of Minerva, but you're taking possession of public spaces, and therefore you're going to build the church of Santa Maria above that temple. And it's not as though the effort to take possession of public spaces was without opposition. Uh, an opposition that became physical opposition just briefly, for example, when you have someone like Julian the Apostate come back into the picture and for several years see if what you could do is reoccupy the spaces mm-hmm. that had been um, had been occupied by the Christians. But that's just, a, 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 in, in a sense, an, an, an intra-Christendom event. But to take one very, very major, two major, very major examples that don't involve the Western part of Christendom, before the Great Crusades, and then one that does involve one part of the Western Christian world that leads to the Great Crusades. Within um, Byzantium, within the eastern part of the empire, there is a terrible, terrible Persian invasion uh, in the early 600s, when the Emperor Heraclius is the man who is going to be the figure who turns the situation around. And it it, it looked as though the end of Eastern Christendom uh, was at hand because the Persians advanced right to the gates of Constantinople. But what happens is that underneath the Emperor Heraclius's control, with the aid of the Patriarch of Constantinople, especially when the Emperor moved with the armies against the Persians further east, what ended up happening is that the Patriarch at home and the Emperor abroad uh, did everything that we connect with crusading in order to stir up the population uh, to fighting off this um, this this uh, seemingly mortal enemy, which had taken over Jerusalem, which had worked together also with forces that were um, anti-Christian in the empire to uh, to try to uh, destroy what had been accomplished earlier, and what they did is they mobilized all of the sacramental uh, forces of the church. And then sacramentals, as we would understand them in a, in a, in a more narrow sense, especially with respect to um, utilizing the icon now. But there's also a crusading literature that develops, particularly around a figure that was referred to as uh, Digenis Acritus, uh, with all of the features of what's connected with literature of crusading of a crusading character in the West later on. And it's a very, very important phenomenon down through to the early part of the 10 hundreds. Then in the West, 
um, what we consider to be crusading uh, really begins with the efforts of the uh, the Spanish to try to reconquer uh, from uh, the Muslims what uh, several Muslim dynasties had uh, had begun in 711. Um, and that uh, is very, very much especially associated with the pilgrimage to Compostela going to be important in shaping all of the um, the, the uh, further development of the crusading ideal in, in the Western part of the Christian world. All right. So we have this this kind of history of what you were talking about at the very beginning of, you know, reclaiming of recapturing um, physical places for Right. For Christianity, for to to uh, continue the the social kingship of Christ, it's essentially um, right. But again, uh, this is yeah. all considered to be a defensive um, measure because these were lands stolen from right. uh, the Christians by either the Persians, the Muslims in the east, or the Muslims in the west. Okay, so let's get into then the Great Crusades. What was happening more broadly in Europe in the Near East? during this time period, do we have to kind of get into the mindset of the people at the time to kind of understand what the Crusades were and what they were all about? Uh, yes, yes, you do. But uh, you have to develop very, very seriously what I just mentioned about Spain um, in conjunction with uh, the rebuilding of a, of a spiritual and political order in the West. Because that's that's absolutely at the at, at central to everything. Before we can talk about what happens in the in the Middle East, and it's it's all centered around the development of the idea of the pilgrimage. Um, it's all centered around the idea of life as a pilgrimage, and then more specifically, the pilgrimage to Compostela and the involvement of people in Western Europe as a whole in the pilgrimage to Compostela, and then the expansion of that. To involve this defense of an Eastern Christianity once again under assault by Muslims, by a, a new, more invigorate, reinvigorated form of Muslim, requiring uh, the transformation of this pilgrimage from uh, uh, from the West to Compostela to the West, starting in the West, going to the to the Holy Land. Uh, if you want, I can I, I can continue on this theme more because sure. it really is centrally important. Um, uh, again, the idea of life as a, an earthly pilgrimage and an earthly pilgrimage, which as the idea of the pilgrimage developed more and more in the West, involved every group in, uh, in, in, in life being engaged in this pilgrimage. This is, not, this is not a pilgrimage that involves, let's say, uh, just a clergy uh, and um, and a uh, 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 the top of the political leadership being involved in guiding the rest of the mob um, to eternal salvation, a pilgrimage in which every every human being must be involved. And the idea of getting people to see life as a pilgrimage in general by taking a shorter period of one's life um, uh, that would involve time out of time to go on a literal pilgrimage from one place to another, uh, then ended up getting, by the time you got into the late 900s and early 1000s, focused on the rather lengthy pilgrimage to Compostela. Now, in order to undertake this pilgrimage, what you had to do is you had to be protected uh, from ordinary criminals. And then also in a Spain, which was still at that time period, very much sub uh, subject to 
battling between Christians and Muslims, you needed to have those people who were armed to protect you. And uh, those armed defenders of the pilgrimage, uh, the earthly pilgrimage reflected in of Compostela, but then, you know, showing you what you had to do in life in general to get to um, uh, eternal life, which uh, which uh, will, will be the end of your pilgrimage journey, meant that the those who were interested in organizing the pilgrimage had to uh, recruit those who were uh, soldiers, those who were professional soldiers to defend everybody else. And this entered into um, another aspect of what the spiritual leaders of the time in the late 900s and early 1000s, who were um, uh, really the, um, the uh, representatives of the reforming elements of uh, the monastic orders of the day, probably most famously associated with the monks of Cluny uh, in the area of Burgundy. Uh, what this was connected with was a need for these monks, these spiritual leaders, to hone in on the biggest troublemakers of the day in Western Europe. And the biggest troublemakers of the day were precisely soldiers who were operating um, underneath the guidance of a myriad of different uh, uh, lower level um Force, forces who don't really even deserve to have the title of of of, of noblemen, uh, but fighting, fighting with one another, endlessly fighting with one another, so much so that there was a play on words that these monks liked to, to utilize. Uh, the word for uh, soldiery is a militia, and they said our soldiery is a malitia, a force yeah. which is operating for evil. So what you needed to do was to find soldiers who would be willing to become subjected to a teaching of what their a military activity really ought to be about, uh, rather than what it ought not to be about. And even if you could get a, a small group of dedicated people who could be transformed in this way, you'd be doing a wonderful, wonderful work. Um, and they managed to get a number of people who uh, were willing to do this uh, and see, therefore, that their soldiers was a defensive job. It was a defense of the believers on their pilgrimage to life reflected now in this work of going on pilgrimage to Compostela. Now, the people who got involved in this in the late 900s and 1000s ended up becoming, um, in effect, uh, dedicated to it as a family occupation so that our, 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 our um, uh, understanding of nobility in the Western part of Europe, as you move into the 10 hundreds and even more into the 11 hundreds, gets more and more associated with families that can prove that they have generations dedicated to soldiering in the proper way. And these, once again, uh, may 100% of the time do what they're supposed to do, maybe 50% of the time do what they're supposed to do, maybe only a fraction of the time do what they, they were supposed to do. And they're intermingled as a result in their activities with political activities uh, back in what's present day France or, or Germany, um, which give them a political clout as well as a clout with uh, as, a, as a spiritual force doing something which is of uh, importance to developing the religious life of uh, the population of Western Europe at the time. But in any case, what ends up happening is you do get a sense of what the soldier is all about. 
that develops generation to generation uh, and is a source of pride for people. Um, at, at, at best for their enti- the entirety of their lives, you know, at wor- worst, at least for a part of their time. And as what happens is this sense of duty um, to defending the faith, which is uh, an act um, that is a, a, a lifelong pilgrimage act for the soldier, because this is the job that they undertake, as the areas expand where such kind of activity uh, might be useful. Uh, as these areas expand, then their realm of activity is also going to expand. And it expands as a soldiery uh, defending the pilgrimage of life in Spain, as Spanish political leaders manage to make advances against Muslims in the peninsula. But it also is going to expand as what happens is the idea of the pilgrimage attracts more and more people to go on pilgrimage to the East, to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which involves a very, very long trip, obviously, uh, sometimes by sea, uh, in fact, at best by sea, in which case uh, cities that are dedicated to uh, commercial activities through the Mediterranean, like Venice or the city of Genova, will end up shipping pilgrimages abroad, and then if if worse, by land, which is much harder, um, through uh, areas of the Eastern Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Christian uh, Empire. All right, so you're going to get an expanded movement headed eastward. Now, what ended up happening, uh, however, to create the Great Crusades is that there was disruption in the Muslim world. Uh, There was weakening of uh, the existing forces in the Muslim world, divisions um, among what had once been uh, a unified caliphate uh, in the eastern part of uh, the Muslim world. And there were new elements that uh, entered into the picture as well that were much more vigorous as they turned out to be, and also in certain respects, much more vigorous in terms of their religious commitment as well. And hence you get the appearance on the scene of um, one after another group of uh, the broad ethnic uh, uh, element that we refer to as the Turks. Uh, And what then took place in the latter part of the 10 hundreds is that more vigorous Muslim forces ended up dominating in the areas of the Holy Land, causing difficulties for pilgrims from the West to come. And not only did they cause difficulties for pilgrims from the West to come, but these uh, uh, quite vigorous Turks and quite religiously committed Turks ended up reversing uh, the um, the uh, advances that the Eastern Christian, the Eastern Byzantine forces had um, had um, had made in the 900s and 10 hundreds and then moving into the heartland of the Eastern Empire. Uh, and what ended up happening is that when you got down into the 1070s, the Seljuk Turks, as this group of Turks is referred to, inflicted a terrible defeat on the Eastern Emperor, uh, Empire, a place called Monsikert, 1071, uh, exposing the entirety of Asia Minor and even the area leading up to Constantinople itself uh, to not just military advances of these people, but actual colonization as well. And in their great danger, what ended up happening is that when you got to the later part of the 10 hundreds is an appeal that goes out for help, an appeal that goes out for help, which apparently the Eastern emperor, the Eastern emperor at the time 
uh, conceived of as help that would come in the form of mercenary soldiers that would be recruited into the army of the Eastern Emperor to then go into battle. But what ended up happening is that this set into motion when the appeal was transmitted to the West, um, it, trans it, was, um, it was translated into a direct appeal of the Pope at the time, um, Pope Urban II, to the soldiery of the West um, in um, several stages because he made a journey Italy. He was not himself an Italian background. He was a he was of of a French background, um, active at the monastery of Cluny, uh, which had a great influence over the papacy uh, to such a degree that he became pope himself as after having had this career at the monastery. Uh, and then he, as pope, makes a journey up from Italy back to Cluny and in the area around Cluny, uh, at which he appeals for help for uh, the Easterners to defend uh, Christianity from this new and more hostile force. And the way that was interpreted uh, was manifold uh, because there were uh, certain ventures to try to give aid uh, to the East that were not exactly what anyone had in mind to begin with, but then uh, uh, ended up leading to this first organized crusade underneath various uh, family, various uh, 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 leaders who had a reputation as being involved in or interested in this whole idea of the armed pilgrimage, the protected armed pilgrimage, then moving off to the uh, to the east, but under no circumstances conceiving their job as being one of auxiliaries to the emperor, but as doing something which was distinct on their own regard, but with regard to the same common goal. I don't know if that uh, gives you uh, something of an idea of what uh, was at stake at the time. Um, yeah, absolutely. Also, I could, yeah, I could give you, there, there is one other important element here, and that is families Families of, um, of nobility of Western Christendom, um, families were or could be rather large. They could be rather large. And according to the way in which um, uh, uh, the, 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 the um, use or possession of land was understood, it's not as though land was going to be divided up among um, many sons. And as a result, younger sons of existing families that had some sort of, of economic or political stake in, uh, in Western Europe, we're not going to have much of a future uh, independently of their elder brother on their own. And as a result, there was a very strong appeal to join up and go on uh, what then becomes known eventually as crusades in order to make their renown. Um, as military men, uh, as Christian military men, um, or if they slip up and don't do what they're supposed to do, uh, just, uh, you know, to give our, our enemies their due with respect to failures of this whole situation as bandits who could, who could uh, stake a claim somewhere in, a, um, in a, uh, an environment where they might be able to win some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of um, place in the sun. Yeah. It's fascinating. There's all these different uh, uh, aspects uh, that are happening. There's this, the religious side, there's the side of, of, you know, there's this historical aspect of 
you know, the soldiers needing to protect pilgrims. All right, now we're going to transition that over now to the East. But then there's also the kind of the militaristic aspect of these, these boys, these young men who don't really have any prospects for their own life. Hey, this is an opportunity for me. So it's all kind of intermingled and gets a little bit uh, hairy, it seems, before we even start the Crusades at all. Before you even started. But I mean, uh, first of all, it, it is always the case that it's going to be, um, I mean, in, in any in any human endeavor um, and in, uh, under any circumstances, it's always going to be the case that it's a, a small number of people who have got a, a, a fully awakened sense of what they're getting into here or what or what they um, uh, want to commit themselves to. Uh, it's interesting to note that once once um, computer technology was fully developed, uh, students of the crusade were able to do a vast amount of work that people beforehand, uh, I don't think, would have the um, the courage to undertake. I mean, by by uh, studying endless, endless, endless uh, documents uh, uh, involving uh, land holdings or feudal arrangements and the like. And uh, just in the past decades, uh, students of the crusades have discovered just how much uh, these rather small numbers of soldiers that ultimately go over there, just how much they gave up in order to risk undertaking this, this venture. Um, they, um, they in effect knew that they weren't uh, a lot of them going to uh, uh, become the, the, um, the, uh, the heads of uh, whatever kind of feudal holdings their families might have, but they gave up and knew they were giving up everything to plunge in to this. Um, and they had spiritual leadership, which emphasized what it was that they were supposed to be doing. That was really quite, quite, quite strong, even if they themselves might have been tepid in their, um, their, 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 their original commitment. Yeah. Well, there are, what, seven, eight various crusades, you know, that historians have kind of said, all right, this is the first crusade, second, et cetera. And we could probably speak for 20 hours about all of them. Uh, so we're not going to go into detail about each individual one, but can can you give us kind of an introduction as to what the first crusade looks like? And that was relative success for the for the West by the time it's all done. Yes, I mean, the the um, the the I can give you a, a, a good understanding, I think, of of the whole of basically people look about the nine great crusades, okay. but I think I can give you a pretty, pretty clear summary of the whole thing. But the first one, as you probably know, it had a prelude to it. That was not what the plan was when urban, the second went off uh, to preach the crusade um, in the middle of the 1090s, because what happened is uh, as, as always was the case in this time period, large numbers of people of every background came to hear uh, a, a traveling pope or anybody connected with the monastery of Cluny, uh, he would preach and large numbers of common people decided to take uh, this message uh, uh, under their own, uh, under their own uh, aegis and do with it what they willed. And hence you get these, you know, this, this prelude to the crusade, which is rather messy to say the least. Um, with Walter the Penniless and uh, uh, his, his his associate uh, Peter the Hermit, um, leading large numbers of people who are not prepared for this, who have their own sense of what they're doing, which was quite quite uh, quite uh, uh, unorthodox to say the least. Yeah. And in fact, 
on, on their way down, many of these people were engaged in rather violent activities that usually you have identified as leading to um, anti-Semitic massacres, but they just as often murdered clergy along the way uh, because of wow. reasons which are complicated that we can't really fully go into. But when the organized group set out, the organized group underneath real military leaders, um, they you know, had their adventures getting down to Constantinople. They had their run-in with the, um, with the emperor and with the, um, the, the basic structure of things uh, in the Eastern Empire when they got there, because the emperor realized they were not going to swear loyalty to him. They were going to go do what they wanted to do um, on their own steam. And uh, what ended up happening is that there is such a, 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 a collection of circumstances involving divisions among the Muslims. Um, uh, 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 divisions that actually lead some of the Muslims to aid these crusaders making their way to their holy um, uh, circumstances that uh, that um, in, involve uh, flawed actions of the crusaders that turned out to be happy flaws when you got uh, got uh, through the whole picture. Uh, miscalculations that proved to be providential in character that. They they won and they captured Jerusalem in in a recognition of them capturing Jerusalem, really not uh, through a great, great uh, uh, intellectual strategic decisions of their own, but by providence. It was a yeah. lucky break. Um, and they realized this. And then when they got there, their own internal divisions led them to establish uh, a divided leadership in the region, which nevertheless was able to uh, keep itself going because of these continued Muslim problems until the Muslims started to put their own act together again by the time you got into the 1140s um, and then uh, start uh, winning back some of the, um, the territory in the region that they lost. But in the interim, what ends up happening is that other things were taking place that were going to develop the crusading movement still further, even through the rather um, um, great and um, disappointing failure of the second failures of the second and the third crusades. And I can develop that if you want me to, or if you want to interject with another question, we can we can do so. No, that's that's fascinating. I'd, I'd love for you to continue that that thought. Uh, just before that, though, we were talking a little bit ahead of time. And, and you mentioned that during the Second Crusade, there's this um, development of the doctrine of indulgences that we still have today in the Catholic Church. So maybe touch on that and then we can kind of keep going forward. Yeah, well, let me let me mention this. Um, it, it, the, the, the Crusaders who, who knew that they won by providential assistance were very much aware that they were a handful of men um, in a, a, a sea uh, that could become very hostile and dangerously hostile if they did not uh, get help from the West, uh, a stronger amount of help from the West. Um, and if the, uh, the enemies that were still divided around them were to unite. So they constantly were sending appeals for help to the, to, to the West. And what's going to end up happening in the West is that they're going to develop friends. They're going to develop friends even before the preaching of the Second Crusade. 
And these friends are going to include uh, most famously um, um, uh, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. All right. He's going to be very, very much um, a friend of the whole crusading ideal. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux had one of his pupils who became Pope at the time of the second, what becomes the second crusade, Eugenius III. All right. So, so Eugenius, St. Bernard are very, very much uh, uh, in contact with one another. Now, um, there's, there's a lot of discussion theologically about the crusading ideal between the first and the second crusade. And there are also things that were happening um, in Spain, which was still fighting. Uh, Spanish rulers were still fighting against Muslim rulers. There were things that were happening in Spain. Um, continue to have an influence, not just in Spain, but on what happens in, uh, in the East with respect to the development of the crusading ideal. So you've got a lot of theological speculation and then a lot of practical developments that are going to enter into what happens at the time of the Second Crusade. One of the developments that's taking place on a practical level is that there's a reinvigoration of the Muslim forces in Spain through um, through uh, a uh, very committed dynasty of Muslim rulers in Morocco. And the Muslims uh, are often energized uh, in their spiritual commitment by, uh, by these mystics who are also teachers in the Sufis. Sufi mystics play a role uh, very important in all ages of the uh, of, of, of Muslim history. Some Sufis are very peaceful in their teaching. Some Sufis are very very militant in their teaching, and they're developed in Morocco and then moved into Spain. This uh, Sufi teaching that was very militant in character and developed in in effect what were um, monks. Uh, in our sense, I mean, people dedicated to prayer who were also soldiers at the same time um, and who lived in 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 a kind of monastic military camp called Rebots. And from Spain, this idea influenced people who were engaged in crusading on behalf of Christianity. So that what you're going to get um, is theological speculation about the need for there to be knights, soldiers, who are also dedicated uh, very, very seriously to the spiritual life. And this is going to be something growing in Spain in the 1100s and growing in the ideas of thinkers in the Western part of Europe in general in the 1100s, and uh, something that has an impact on the crusaders who go to the Holy Land as new recruits and some of them who are there on the spot uh, as well. And the result is that you're going to be developing in the 1100s uh, these groups of Christian knight um, uh, monks, uh, uh, the, 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 um, the new knighthood, as St. Bernard refers to it. And it's out of this that you start to get developing uh, the knights of the temple, in the knights of the hospital, who are dedicated uh, uh, spiritually. Uh, to their personal uh, holiness, but also to doing their work as defenders of the the temple or the area of the old temple in Jerusalem, or who develop a career for themselves 
as hospital um, uh, organizers and workers uh, because of the fact that there's a great need to take care of all of the, the sick uh, or the who come as pilgrims or who come as soldiers. And hence you get the Knights Hospitallers who become uh, the core of what's present day Knights of Malta. Um, and then there are many, many others in Spain and in um, in the Holy Land who become the core of these new military orders, half monk, half soldier. Um, but then there's other speculation with regard to what going off to the Holy Land means as a soldier or what going off to the Holy Land merely as a pilgrim means. Um, and what it means to aid these soldiers or pilgrims uh, on the part of people who can't go off uh, to pilgrimage and stay at home. And what's going to happen in the in the mind of um, theologians speculating on this uh, is going to develop into what we call the indulgence. And this is one of the most fascinating developments of uh, the 1100s. And it's part of the entire intellectual explosion of the West uh, that involves exploiting um, Aristotelian logic in order to uh, appropriate it for the use of developing the data of revelation um, or developing um, uh, the, the, the other ideas that are going to pour into the Western world from a further exploration of pre-Christian Greek philosophy. And it, all of this aids into the building of a much, much clearer idea of what we call the mystical body of Christ and a speculation on how all of us in the mystical body of Christ aid one another spiritually in the different um, realms that we are, we have our vocations in. It's not the case that everybody can drop uh, his, his, his responsibilities as a father of a family and go off on a pilgrimage or uh, even go off abandoning the family is the feudal estates to go off on pilgrimage uh, because he'll, he'll neglect what is necessary for the maintenance of uh, the, the given family and even his, his, his just political responsibilities at home. So what is it that you do? Well, uh, you meditate on this and you say, well, we all aid one another as part of the mystical body. And we all aid one another calling upon the help of those who are more advanced in holiness than we are as we seek to aid one another. And um, thinking about all of these matters leads the theologians of the 1100s to begin to develop what they see is already there. And they see it's already there into uh, the, uh, the doctrine of indulgences. In other words, well, here, let me give you an example from, from the Old Testament, right? David David says um, to God, I am going to build you a house, right? Um, I'm going to build you a house. How does God respond to that? God responds to that by saying, you're building me a house. I'm going to now make your house glorified for all of time. So what does that mean? It means David's little action is greeted by God by indulging David and giving a greater, greater gift to David than he might have ever dreamed possible. That's an indulgence. That's an indulgence. And then the speculation on all of that leads people like St. Bernard and others to say, well, we, we all of us are part of this mystical body where some are holier and some are less holy. 
Um, those who do what it is that they can do in their limited realm um, are, are able um, to gain from the treasury of those who are more holy um, a blessing on the work that they do that is much greater uh, than considering that work in its, its narrow, natural circumstance. So out of all of this, what starts to uh, happen is that uh, uh, under the guidance of uh, the greatest thinkers of the age, the church builds up its understanding of indulgence and it says, you people who are, let's say, praying for the soldiers who are going off to war, by doing what you're doing, um, uh, we can consider if you pray um, for the aid of the saints, if you go to communion and tap into uh, uh, the, the, the merits that have been gained by those who are higher in holiness than you are, you can, by your minor action, get a greater, greater gift from God for that, um, based upon looking back to what God gave David by David just simply offering to build a house for him. Now, I'm just trying to explain this in my non-theological way to you, sure. but the whole understanding of it uh, is, is built, built up at the time of the Second Crusade. And as a consequence of that, the preaching for the Second Crusade is the most developed, perhaps in many ways, of all of the Crusades, spiritually. Um, and you've got all of these ideas of we have a new knighthood a knighthood which is a knighthood of spiritual and military activity or spiritual and military and uh, uh, physical medical healing of the sick activity, which is blessed by God. Um, and we're all of us in particular way doing this for the benefit of the common cause of Christendom. And it's also at the time of the Second Crusade that the organization of the crusade is taken directly under the control of the paper, taken directly under that control. Now, the problem is it doesn't work out physically um, well, the second crusade. And as a result, it's a bit of a disillusionment to people because the preaching of it is so magnificent and so extensive and so developed with all sorts of ideas of the enhancement of the role of the, 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 the military monk and the uh, giant work of all of Christendom uh, uh, with each person doing his little bit but gaining greater rewards for it all, that the failure of it um, uh, was a bit disillusioning. But that brings us to the next element uh, in the whole picture, ironically. There's an even greater effort made in the Third Crusade. Uh, with 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 all of the most important crowned heads of Europe involved in it, with the King of France, with the the, the King of England, with the with the the uh, the Emperor himself involved in it, um, and that has a somewhat of a greater impact, but also does not achieve its its great goal, because in the interim, after um, the Second Crusade, which which did not have the idea of the Second Crusade was to aid um, the uh, the people back in the uh, the Holy Land under an increased Muslim threat, with one particular place having been uh, conquered uh, again, but not Jerusalem. But between the Second and the Third Crusade, Jerusalem was taken over by the Muslims, and as a result, the Third Crusade had as its goal to get it back, um, to get it back. But it, it it doesn't. It doesn't, and. That leads to a further development of the whole crusading ideal, 
And that further crusading of the, uh, of the uh, development of the crusading ideal is something which is enunciated by the man that many people consider to be the most powerful pope of the Middle Ages, Innocent III, um, who's pope between 1198 and 1216. Now, what happens with him? Well, Innocent III is very, very keen on uh, being able to win Jerusalem back and defend Christendom as a whole. But he says the reason why our crusading externally is not achieving its goal is because internally, internally, we Christians are not conducting holy war in our own lives. We're not conducting holy war in our own lives. And the essential thing for us to be able to make the military war successful is for us to be able to engage in crusading in every aspect of life um, in already existing Christendom. So Innocent III has got this grand vision of the need to intensify the militancy as crusaders of all of us in all of our specific aspects of life. And he develops this very, very clearly. He's got a number of writings. One of them is called, I think, The Threefold Meaning of Marriage. And he talks about the fact that all of creation is meant to be married to God. And as a result, all of us as, as uh, families, as members of organizations, as, is the militant organizer of the university system in Europe, because he sees the universities as the think tanks spiritually. But he needs also the most purified spiritual preachers to be able to make sure that everybody is crusading in every aspect of life. And that's why he mobilizes the Franciscans and Dominicans to do uh, militant activity. And as you know, that's what St. Francis and Dominic see themselves as, as crusaders. They are crusaders, except to take Francis, Francis as an example. He's, his, his chivalric knightly lady is poverty, as he, in a purified way, goes around preaching. Um, and all of this together is going to purify Christendom so that in the future, crusading will be successful. All right. That's the ultimate argument that he's, he's, he's got here. Now, again, um, as you well know, unfortunately, there's another set of problematic crusades that are going to disillusion people afterwards um, in a way that's going to um, make that whole theme to be seem to be much more complicated in uh, in in, in um, achieving success than innocent may have hoped it to be. So that's that's a kind of framework of what happens there. And then after the third crusade, those other crusades that form the part the parts of the so-called nine great crusades going down to 1291, um, they, they, they're disillusioning for people. They're disillusioning because of the failures that take place. And in a number of cases, certain crimes that take place as well. On that note, speaking of specific crimes that take place, one of the more uh, jarring ones is the, the atrocities that took place during the fourth crusade, just shortly afterwards, right. where soldiers are not... Like you said, that in in the very first crusade, they were they were committing anti-Semitic crimes. They were also killing clergy. But in the fourth crusade, they are sacking entire Eastern Orthodox uh, cities. They, meaning Western Roman Latin Catholics, are sacking entire Western Orthodox 
cities. Uh, not very good for uh, trying to get union back with the Eastern Orthodox churches, I would presume. No, no. See, of course. See, um, uh, again, Innocent III is horrified by what happens on that Fourth Crusade because that was his baby, that Fourth Crusade. Yeah. You know, he was he was everything he was doing was designed to make sure that you'd have a, a, a better organized and a more purified Christendom to be able to conduct um, a crusade that would merit being able to, 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 to win. And what ended up happening there is that you have you have a classic example of what we started out our discussion regarding. You've got the ideal and then you've got human beings who are uh, who are the ones who are the agent deal. And it's not always the case that the people who are the agents of the ideal uh, are um, going to carry out the project properly. And what happened in that fourth crusade is you see an instance of um, something that um, that um, uh, St. Bernard and um, uh, also one of the great political writers of the 1100s, John of Salisbury, were worried about because they, you know, they they knew and anybody uh, spiritually enlightened knows that this project of trying to mobilize all human beings in all of the different realms of activities that they're engaged in, in a militant way that would involve also warfare, warfare is not exactly, um, it's not exactly like organizing family members to go out for a pizza on Friday <laughs> night. This is something which is, uh, involves the struggle of every human passion being brought yeah. under control. And both St. Bernard and John of Salisbury were very worried about the influences of um, narrow, um, the influence of narrow self-interested groups in undertaking such activities. Bernard was very much worried about legal minded thinkers, bureaucratic minded thinkers uh, with narrow political goals in their mind. John of Salisbury was very much worried about the growing power of money of money men. And he said, this is going to be a huge danger for everybody in the future. And what happened in the Fourth Crusade was very simply that these soldiers went their way down to Venice in order to get transport to the Holy Land. And they were always the soldiery broke. And the Venetians, who are money men, said, well, we'll transport you if what you do is you just help us with a little side business along the yeah. way. And the side business ended up sacking the city of Zara. Uh, which Venice had some some troubles with, after which time um, they the entire crusading army was excommunicated. It was underneath excommunication for having failed to do what it was supposed to do. And uh, there's all kinds of debates as to what entered into the picture uh, after uh, after that um, that that uh, that, that uh, irregular situation of the crusading army. But there were any number of figures involved in trying to interpret what should be done next, who could take advantage of everything from the lack of communication. Again, uh, how do they know exactly where they really stand with relation to the Pope? Um, and there are lots of people who are as intermediaries willing to try to soften the blow and claim that it's not as bad as it really seems it is. Uh, in a way that could make them um, feel as though their their situation is not spiritual as as uh, foreboding as it seems to be, and then there's others who 
they better get in as many sins as they can before they get forgiveness. And linked all together with internal Byzantine problems, there is that second step which led the army off to intervene in battling um, of, 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 uh, of uh, various hostile internal forces so as to um, overthrow the existing authority in Constantinople and make it into a Western kingdom. All right. And yes, this has been one of the greatest disasters in terms of poisoning Eastern Western relations um, since that time. It was even it was even brought up again um, as being essential for John Paul II to address um, in dealing with um, with uh, the patriarch of Constantinople and again with Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, it constantly comes up. So, yes, indeed, big problems. Wow. Um, as we uh, so one we, other thing. Uh, yeah, please. Now, one other thing it's important to note here, and this this is um, this is uh, fits in with St. Bernard uh, and his fears. You might know that St. Bernard wrote a uh, uh, he wrote an exhortation to Eugenius III and he warned him about the dangers of uh, um, uh, manipulated by a narrow minded, bureaucratic, legal, political mentality. He warned them about this. And this this kind of warning continues through the 1200s. And what did happen, what did happen is that uh, the 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 papacy, uh, when it uh, developed its power and was to, to take the good side of the argument, seized with this vision of being able to build a world that would be ordered towards transforming everything in Christ. It did so um, in a way that could lead to exaggerations in policy and did lead to exaggerations in policy to make popes, individual popes, think that they could really reorder everything absolutely correctly for the sake of achieving the most perfect political church-state relationships in Europe to their advantage to the degree that they then began declaring political crusades. Um, crusades inside Europe against this particular leader because he wasn't operating in line with papal policy, the way in which they uh, thought best uh, uh, best suited to achieving their goals, and against cities in Europe that weren't contributing or doing what they were supposed to be doing according to uh, the exact papal policy. And as a consequence, you have found large numbers of political crusades being called with uh, with 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 um, political leaders and cities being punished for not going along with papal policies by um, uh, imposing interdicts um, against uh, the use of uh, uh, the implementation of um, um, uh, or, or interdicts for, for the sake of uh, cutting off access to the sacraments until they did what they were supposed to do. And you have some places in places like Italy where um, you've got cities that are deprived of sacraments for 40 and 50 years during the course of the 1200s for not fitting into papal policy accurately. And in the midst of all of this, the Crusades collapse. And in 1291, the last um, bastion of Western crusading uh, power in the Holy Lands disappeared. And as a consequence, the disillusionment was so great that there's going to be a temptation to say that the reason why all of this happened is because the leadership of the church has done all sorts of things that it should not have done that have ruined it. And to a certain degree, that's true. Wow. Um, 
1291, this all, like you said, this all kind of falls apart, but there were, memory serves me right, there were a lot of little skirmishes, a lot of little battles that we wouldn't necessarily call crusades that still continued on after the 1300s. Is that right? Oh, some of them very big ones too. Okay. Some of them very big ones. In fact, you know, the way things work out, you know, the way things work out, the more that you've got um, difficulties in trying to do something on a practical level, the more you get grandiose intellectual discussion of how you can achieve this goal. Sure. And the discussions of how to undertake crusading got all the more grand after the collapse of the position of the West in the Holy Land. Uh, and then they had to deal with this new threat, which was another group of Turks, uh, the Ottoman Turks. The Seljuk Turks that were there were one group. The Ottoman Turks are a different group. They become very important and powerful by the 1300s. And there was a grand intellectual plan for dealing with them that actually achieved a uh, 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 the uh, the uh, uh, the putting together of a quite large crusading force in the late 1300s that advanced against the Ottoman Turks, an international group, biggest one, I think, bigger than any of the forces that were sent during the Great Crusades, but mm. uh, in many respects, uh, badly badly integrated, um, and then. Um, and then falling prey to a horrific, horrific defeat in a place called Nicopolis um, in the late 1300s that gave to the crusading enterprise again another, another, uh, 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 another uh, uh, black eye. Uh, and then you get other efforts that continue, uh, but they do have some success later on. Um, there are further crusading efforts, especially in trying to deal with uh, Ottoman advances. And hence, you get in the late 1500s, the great success of the Holy League um, at the Battle of um, Lepanto. And then you get also the success of another Holy League when the Ottomans were advancing to Vienna in uh, the 1680s. And that success actually turned the tide um, uh, entirely against Muslim advances, so much so that there are, for, for you know, the average person, um, uh, unsung crusades that were hugely successful in the early 1700s, pushing the Ottomans way back, way back, way back, uh, down through to 1740. Uh, so yes, there are other successes in, 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 in crusading in the, uh, um, in the traditional sense that continue right down through to the 1700s to be followed by crusades of a different sort, really in the 1800s and the 1900s as well. The last people, there's a book called um, The Last Crusade, which is a discussion of the very, very serious international crusading effort that was made to build up a papal army for Pius IX to defend uh. what remained of the papal states due to the onslaught of the um, forces of the Italian unification movement. And that was a, a that's an extraordinary tale with um, large numbers of crusaders and who, people who viewed themselves as crusaders coming from Canada and from the United States, from the United States, from Belgium, from France, from Germany, from Austria, from Spain, from all over. Um, 
with 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 their own their own army there, um, which uh, ultimately fought um, to the end in 1870 against the final advance that took over uh, Rome in uh, in September of that year. That's fascinating. That that idea of crusade, you know, just in a broad sense, not just in the you know talking about Jerusalem and, and the Near East, but just crusading in in general. Like you said, still was going on in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s for the papacy. The 1900s. I mean, the 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 nationalists, the nationalists in Spain in the Civil War, they don't call that the Civil War; they call that the Crusade. That's the Crusade. Uh Um, It's the Crusade because because that's that's to fight for the defense of Christian civilization least officially and certainly um, uh, uh, several of the main elements that form the alliance of the nationalists uh, still today talk about that uh, that that uh, battle as as the crusade, um, as Mm. the continuation of the Spanish crusading uh, tradition. What do you I'm going to ask you an an opinion question here, Uh, and this is your opinion, Dr. Rao. Uh, You've been giving us a lot of the historical stuff, which is all objective, true or not true, but hopefully all true. Um, but in, in your opinion, when you see imagery, particularly online, of you know, crusades, I'm going to go on a crusade, I'm going to fight a crusade for the defense of the traditional Latin mass, for instance, right. uh, you know, a Twitter user with, a, you know, a, a knight in shining armor and holding a sword. How do you see that? What do you think that that is helpful to to connect ourselves in the fight for tradition to this grand tradition of capital C crusading? Or do you think it's not quite the same? What, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's it's capable of being misunderstood and misused, obviously, uh, because because one would not want the people using this imagery uh, to think that they are committed to defending everything that happened in every crusade or to think that everything that's been said to indicate that there were crimes committed in crusades is somehow or other uh, uh, a, a, a lie that's uh, uh, part of a, a gigantic conspiracy, conspiracy, because there are, there have been a lot of things, and it's inevitable that there are a lot of things that are done wrong in every realm of human activity. So uh, if, it's, if, it, if it is part of a mentality that thinks that everything that happened uh, in every crusade has been wonderful and that yeah. uh, anybody who brings up any kind of crime against it has to be dismissed as a liar. That would be wrong. Um, but to go back to what I started our whole argument with, the entirety of the Christian vision is one that uh, brings a sword into, into, into life because there is a battle um, uh, because the kingdom of God is at hand, as Christ says. There's a battle that requires everybody. And, you know, it's not just the Christian who understood this um, in our own Western tradition. You already see this whole vision of things, in the arguments of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that we who live in uh, this, 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 this earthly realm, we have a task before us that involves not just accepting everything around us, but correcting it. Um, correcting it and transforming it. Because to use the words of Plato, uh, anybody who wants to get what's beautiful and what's most beautiful is eternal union with God has got to step back and understand, first of all, what's good and what's true um, and be ready to die for that. 
because there's no way that you're going to be able to achieve anything that is beautiful uh, without all three of those elements entering into the picture and sacrifice taking place and sacrifice, which might mean um, dying uh, for that sacrifice. So that, you know, there's there's a militancy that's there built into Christianity. Um, and it's a false interpretation of the message of Christ to think that somehow or other uh, you're supposed to, in a, in a sense, uh, achieve this goal without entering into a dialogue that can involve um, demands for change for yourself and for and for for other people as well in a way that uh, can, under just circumstances, in, 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 in involve um, having to having to fight for what it is that you believe. That's the overall picture. But then it's also the case that uh, you might say it's due to the accidents of his accident of history that uh, when this whole enterprise that I've 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 summarized uh, most broadly under the work of Innocent the Third and Innocent the Third's work with the Fourth Lateran Council as well, we, you know, organizing understanding of the sacramental structure and the parish structure and the need to go to communion and to go to confession and, and, and everything connected with that and the mobilization of the universities as think tanks and the preachers of the Franciscans and the Dominicans. Um, when you look at all of that, all of that activity under historical circumstances began with the efforts of the monks of places like Cluny to try to carve out for themselves a place to pray because they started in the 900s um, uh, under a, in a situation uh, where there was just rampant warfare everywhere around them. And they wanted to live a life of prayer and union with God. And in order to do so, they had to create a realm of peace around them. And the problem that they were facing that prohibited them from being able to peacefully pray was not because uh, of the fact that the local baker was causing them difficulties um, or the local shoemaker was causing them difficulties. It was because there were all of these wretched uh, soldiers around them who were uh, who were uh, just engaged in in in, in rapine uh, that made it impossible for anybody to go out uh, and do something spiritual. So their first task was to show soldiers what their real job was to be just soldiers. And as a result, they had to train soldiers. They had to train soldiers who were people engaged in military activity, uh, militant action. And then as men, people who, you know, were doing manly things as, as soldiers. So it, it just by the circumstances of history started out that it was military men and soldiers that you had to tame. They were the mm -hmm. ones you had to tame. And in order to probably to deal with the rest of Christendom, this kind of soldier language and military language and, you know, and, and engaging in warfare with yourself uh, became part and parcel of the of the 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 activity of taming everybody spiritually, taming everybody spiritually. You you are you were a soldier for Christ in whatever activity that you were engaged in. Uh, you had spiritual warfare uh, to combat. And again, the, 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 the example that brings it down 
to the most peaceful realms, you could say, um, is is that of St. Francis once again. St. Francis, here, there he is. He's a preacher, right? He's a preacher. He's engaged in trying to um, bring the message down to everybody. He's, He's engaged in a life of poverty. But what's his language? His language is soldier language. You know, it's soldier language. He's a he's a spiritual warrior. Um, And all of that has has just um, inundated every aspect of um, of of, uh, the 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 work of of correcting and transforming everything in Christ. It's always had in our history this military flavor to it. Um, Maybe it would have been different if bakers had been the problem and you were complaining about yeast. (laughs) But it's not the way that it worked. And I think that that's not an accident. Also in the East, I mentioned that with the uh, crusading of Heraclius and then of the Byzantine empires later, it was a military man that was the one who was um, who was uh, um, uh, uh, the example for people fighting on the frontiers. And so it's it's a spiritual warfare um, that um, that uh, we fight. And that's on the practical level. But I'm saying it's there in the original teaching as well. You know, yeah. it's a sword that we're brought into the world. And yeah. certainly that's been made crystal clear to us the last three years. You know, <laughs> I mean, all all everything's been made as far as I'm concerned, all veils have been. Um, have been dropped over the last uh, years. And we've seen that our opponents, including the opponents who would probably criticize us for the Crusades, are engaged in the most vicious warfare for an unjust cause that they would like us to respond to by having uh, no no sense of um, of of militant need to response to uh, to respond to. So. As you're as you're telling some of these anecdotes, I'm reminded of another anecdote from the other end of the world, which is when Father Junipero Serra was, you know, traveling through the California coast, and he had soldiers behind him to protect the monks, you know, uh, Spanish soldiers. Right. And again, the story goes: who knows how accurate it is that as he's walking along this trail and he's trying to figure out how he's going to have money to build some of these missions that he needs to build, he sees a massive gold nugget on the ground. And instead of stopping to pick it up, he kicks it off the side of the hillside because he knows if he picks it up and the soldiers see it, chaos. They are just going to just sweep in and just destroy everything. Um, so there's always in, in the Catholic Church, there's this tension between the spiritual good, the temporal good, the guys who are going to act for the temporal good, the guys who are going to act for the spiritual good. And, and like you said, taming that desire. You know, one of the most telling um um, anecdotes uh, with regard to the Spanish colonization. I perhaps I shouldn't leap too far ahead of that, but this one. Yeah, we'll talk about it. But yeah, I'll mention right now. Um, uh, again, we'll go into more detail at another date. But obviously, when when the conquest of Mexico took place, uh, uh, the the Indian population doesn't know what's going on here at all, and there there are things that happen that are not uh, not good as well. But what made a huge impression, a huge impression on the native population was that um, uh, when the missionaries came, the first group of missionaries came, they were Franciscans. They were Franciscans and they came and they came with this sense of mission 
Um, and they were quite gifted Franciscans, the first ones who were sent into Mexico. And this is while, you know, the original one, uh, the original conquistadores are, are, are there. It's just that we're talking about a short time afterwards. And the local population was stunned that when these Franciscan foot came into Mexico City, that the soldiery got on their knees, mm-hmm. got on their knees and treated them as though they were the ones who were in charge. You know, that left a huge impression. You know, why is it that these people with weapons feel that these barefoot people uh, yeah. are the ones they've got to pay pay heed to? You know? Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Too. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up, let me just ask you one pointed question, because we've been, you know, we've been talking about it last hour, hour, 20 minutes, all this background, all this, all this history. And I think someone who's listened to all of it can refute this fairly easily, but could you help this person out by just giving kind of a soundbite answer, if you can, what is the best way to respond to someone who says that all of these atrocities, all of this violence is proof that crusades were bad and that it wasn't a Catholic thing. It wasn't Christian. It wasn't charitable. You know, what's your kind of elevator speech refutation of that? Well, I mean, I think I would start off by saying, is there anything worth fighting for? Um, is there anything is there anything worth fighting for or is your vision of life the John Lennon vision of 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 of, of life that there's nothing there's nothing to kill or to die for uh-huh. um, because if there's nothing to kill or die for um, then uh, what you're what you're telling me is that there's no reason why uh, you should be foisting down our throats all of these totalitarian commands to build the Gnostic new world that you're trying to create. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and that you are willing, um, as your own websites tell us, your own websites tell us, which oftentimes when you even show it to people, they don't want to believe that you think that the population of the earth should be um, reduced no. by 5 billion people. I mean, how are you going to achieve this? except by destroying people. We're not talking about doing something which is unjust, but we are the very people who admit that we are capable of doing something that's unjust. And that did, but it's only with respect to something which we consider to be a just defense of the true, the good, and the beautiful that we're, we're, we're even speaking of defending the Crusades for. I mean, if you come along to me and say to me, well, the Crusades had bad people who did bad things in it. My answer to that is, what do you expect? Because everything that involves um, uh, human action involves bad people. Um, what does this mean with regard to any of the uh, any of the, um, the the various wars that uh, that that are treated as though they're um, uh, unquestionably worth having fought in the 20th century? Yeah. Is there anything worth living and dying for? And if you tell me, no, there's nothing to worth, uh, worth living, to, uh, living and dying for, then I would add to that um, question, um, do you have any grounds for being able to even tell me whether anything is right or wrong? Um, because I, I don't know if you know the famous debate that took place between Father Copleston. Um, Father Copleston, uh, 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 the, the great historian of, uh, of philosophy and... Um, Oh, heavens, heavens, I have to ask my wife now. I've forgotten the great philosopher um, uh, that was alive in the 20th century, the British philosopher, this uh, Bertrand Russell, I think I'm talking oh, yeah, yeah. about. Okay. Uh, yeah, about, about the, um, this, the, 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 the Second World War and the Nazis and what the Nazis did, whatever. And uh, 
Copleston got Russell to admit that he had no grounds for being able to even say that this was true or this was false or this was mm. good or this was evil. Um, and that meant, therefore, that his only grounds for being opposed to the Nazis and being willing to fight them was the fact that he didn't like them and he didn't want them to win. Uh-huh. And you know what that principle is? That's the imposition of his will. And do you yeah. know what the imposition of the will is? That's the Nazi principle. Yeah. The triumph of the will. So it just happens that I just don't like what you say. And therefore, I want you to admit that you're wrong on that basis. Uh, but therefore, OK, maybe I'm now going to another starting point rather than the first one I, 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 I gave. I, I perhaps would want to start out by tossing the ball in his court and say, before I answer that question, will you explain to me why you're uh, because because uh, you don't have any grounds for saying what's right or wrong. You have no grounds for saying what's good or evil. The only thing that you're telling me is that you want me to submit myself to your will. So I want to know, first of all, why you're a Nazi, and then I'll engage in a debate with you. Mm-hmm. That might help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that will. Well, um, by the way, as we- by the way uh, I would suggest if people don't know much about the Crusades, yeah. I, I, there's, I, I would suggest that they start off reading about the Crusades uh, by um, the writings of a, of a British writer, Jonathan Riley Smith. Jonathan Riley okay. Smith has got a number of books on the Crusades, which are, you know, he's a superb scholar and they're, 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 they're very good. And they touch on all of the matters that I've discussed here, including the development of indulgences and, and the like. Um, and so they're, they're, they're a good start for, for someone to, uh, um, to uh, uh, be able to deal with this matter with. There's another English writer um, uh, named Powell, who's got a collection of the writings of Innocent III, uh, that, uh, or essays on Innocent III, that talk about, um, talk about his whole understanding of the broad crusading ideal uh, and, um, and then there's another book by a man named Norman Cohen. It's an old book called the pursuit of the millennium, okay. which, which in effect, I mean, it indicates certain things that can go haywire. If you believe that, uh, the guiding ideal is not disturbed by human sinfulness, but it also in effect indicates to you that the modern answer to dealing with the Christian vision of things is to go off into outer space into the vision of a new reality, um, which is then uh, created and defended by means of the most bloody totalitarianism and uh, and uh, destruction of uh, the whole understanding of the human being that could possibly be imagined. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for those resources. That's uh, that's fantastic. And we'll put some links up in the show notes as well for that. Um, so this has been great. And like I said, we're going to have you for the next few episodes, at least um, next time we're going to be talking about uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Inquisition. Inquisition. So that's always another fun one uh, to, to dive into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, All right. we'll speak to you next time. Thank you again so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.